Welcome to the Crimson Education Podcast, where each week we bring together top experts in their field from around the world to talk about the topics that matter to you, from artificial intelligence to the future of higher education. Crimson is the world leader in global admissions consulting, helping students everywhere get into the universities of their dreams. To learn more and to apply for a free education assessment with one of our academic experts, visit crimsoneducation.org. And if you have questions for our guests, recommendations for topics, and more, email podcast at crimsoneducation.org. Crimson Education, reimagine what's possible. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Crimson Podcast channel. Once again, it's David Freed here in San Francisco. My guest today, once again, Jamie Beaton. Jamie, how are you doing? Fantastic. Excited to be here with you, David. Great. So, Jamie, um, a little bit of background, is a good friend of mine, a former classmate, and the CEO of Crimson Education, an online company and the sponsor of this podcast dedicated to providing education across the globe. What we're going to talk about is actually a core part of what Crimson Education does, which is online learning. Jamie, you want to start out by telling us about how we use online learning here at Crimson? Yeah, so... I guess when I was a student in New Zealand, there was nobody I could ask at all in high school about, you know, the overseas application process, the SATs, these kind of, all these experiences crucial to getting into one of these schools like Harvard or Yale or Princeton or something like that. Crimson solves this problem. We provide an online network where, where you, anywhere in the world, can access top quality mentors from the world's best universities on demand anytime. What this means is you're no longer limited based geographically on, you know, whatever your career counselor knows or what what you can access locally. Our students learn through video calling, one-on-one uh, -on -one with their mentors, um, with a range of exciting online tools and support and resources to make that experience very effective. The combination of the, you know, access to quality mentors, the intimate personalized sort of nature of the program, and also a focus on data makes the learning experience very exciting for our students. At the end of the day, if you're chilling in New Zealand in the other corner of the world with 4 million people, and you can hop on a call with an MIT physicist when you like physics, that's pretty damn exciting. Jamie, it's just background on online learning and your passion for it is why we've brought you in today. What we're going to cover today is what makes a good online education, where can it succeed, and where does it fail? What are its weaknesses, and are there areas perhaps that can never be made up um, with online education versus your normal in-person variety? And later, I want to get your take on schools which are completely online. What do they do well, and what parts of that really structured online education can really provide that might replace those elements of an in-person school, being with classmates, being around other people, doing those activities in school. How will online schools of the future really compensate for those elements? But before we get started, when was the first time you took a class online? That is a great question. Uh, the first class I took basically online was Harvard CS50 course. Now, I don't know if I was technically supposed to take this class online, but the way this works is essentially... So CS50, for those of you who aren't familiar, is an online uh, and offline computer science course offered by Harvard. Now, typically this course is an introductory course, so it's designed to attract people from all kinds of different backgrounds, from English majors through to math backgrounds. Now... As a Harvard student, I could attend the physical lectures, and I could go in there and watch the lectures, but they also recorded them, they live-streamed them, and they also had online resources like videos, things like that, and online problem sets. So as a result, I could literally attend my lectures from anywhere and watch them when I wanted to. So that was actually my first real experience of learning online, um, 
Not even How high old school, were you when this happened? Actually, 18. So this is... Uh, actually, no, 19. This was in my second year at Harvard. So um, that, uh, yeah, was my first online learning experience. So I, I was late to the party, but I've become an enthusiastic fan. What really... did Was it successful? Did you like it? Did you ever feel like, you know, you're missing out by not being in person? I actually thought it was incredible because basically um, the thing about this, right, is the lectures were were pretty big in terms of the number of people. It wasn't like you could probably ask, you know, tons and tons of questions in the, le- in the lecture format just because there was a lot of different people and there was tons of sort of um, exposition and, and content being shared. So I really felt like whether there was one person or like 5,000 people watching that lecture, it didn't really matter, right? And the fact that I could watch it online, I could speed it up um, 2x, 1.5x through the slower parts, then I could slow it down or replay sections that basically were more confusing. That was very valuable to me. And then when it came to actually solving the problem sets and having dynamic question answer with people, I could go to the actual live you know, tutoring sessions where I had a, a so-called a TF or a teaching fellow um, you know, give guidance to me as to how I could solve the problem. So that experience combined efficient online learning where, where it really helped and was actually convenient with the offline intimate experience of being able to access tutors. Now, I would also say the fact that the tutors were, were offline doesn't really matter to me. If I could access them on demand anytime online, that would also be totally chill too. But um, essentially, there are some parts of the learning experience that require you to be able to uh, you work one-on-one with people or intimately, and other things that can just be mass broadcast. And I think that you know online can cater to both these niches quite effectively. So I think one thing that so I totally agree that, as you said, there are a couple of things about online education that really distinguish it. One of them is its flexibility. I think one thing you highlighted was that online education brings two things, right? You have that very flexible element where you watch your lectures whenever, you watch them at 2x speed. Um, uh, anecdotally, I find that when you start watching lectures at 2x speed, going to the real world and talking to people is painfully slow. <laughs> painfully slow. Anyway. Um, but you also have that, and then you have your time-sensitive parts, right? So that's the part that doesn't matter if it's offline or it's on demand, but you need people to respond to you immediately. You need kind of that one-on-one, really dense interaction when you're trying to do that problem set that you push off for six days and you just really want to master the night before the deadline. So I know since CS50, you've really taken this opportunity and, you know, not to put too much on you, but you're using distance learning to do your master's, do your MBA, do your doctorate. Talk about how really online education enables all those things. And quite frankly, would that have ever been possible before 2019? So I think basically um, the, the beautiful thing about these experiences, so to give you some detail, my DPhil, uh, or my PhD at Oxford, um, is a program in which I need to essentially do research um, with a company analyzing you know, data on learning outcomes and work with my, you know, my advisor. Now, whether or not I'm sitting in front of her in a laboratory at Oxford or whether I'm talking to her online, the key thing is how my research is going, how the data is going. So the point of physical interaction relative to online interaction, there isn't actually a huge difference in terms of the results. It's not like we're doing research together in the same lab at Oxford because my sort of source of research is, is far away. So in that case, online works very effectively. It actually gives me more flexibility, which lets me do better research because I'm closer to the source. Now, when it comes to MBA, I do think a big part of the MBA experience is the in-person interaction, the social charisma that you develop with other peers. Now, I've got a pretty funny experience with online learning or online relationships where when I first started Crimson, 
There was a student called、uh, Fang Zhou who joined us. And for the first 18 months, I worked with him entirely online. He then joined our team, worked with us for you know, another 12 months. And literally, I hadn't seen the guy in person yet. But by this stage, I felt like he was one of my closest friends. I'd never met the guy in person, but I'd spent so much time with him on video calls, I knew the guy. And then when I finally met him in person, if I'm to be really honest with you, and this sounds a bit scary, it wasn't really any different. You know, his quirks online were exactly the same. It was just a c o m p l i c a t i o n But you've done、copy. tons of video chats with him, right? It、yeah. wasn't like the first time you're seeing his no, face. It was tons of video chats. So I think video chat's very powerful, basically. And video、yeah. chat has become dramatically more reliable, more stable, you know, easy to connect, good Wi Fi everywhere. So I think there's been a big rise in, in that phenomenon.、Um, So, long story short, I would say, I think, I think online learning has been able to be done now for about you know, sort of 10 years or so. But the last couple of years have seen a big rise in the quality of video calling. And that's really helped to kind of propel the efficacy of you know, Crimson and other services、um, and universities like this、uh, you know, effectively. Going back,、um, I'm curious to take this in a slightly different direction. So, you've talked really about the benefits of video learning, the benefits of. Doing things online again to recap the flexibility, the customization, the kind of no drop off in quality. I'm sort of curious then, what do you think are the downsides? What are the things that the technology still struggles with?、Um, why are porn people not on these platforms? Why aren't there kind of big online universities that we're all going to, right? Because you see Coursera, you see edX. You see all those places online where people can go to learn, and they obviously have these fantastic NRLE numbers, but you don't see people dropping out of their public schools. You don't see people doing it full time, and the ability to support these programs internationally isn't that big. So I'm curious why you think that is, and what are some of the advantages that in person public learning still has over these big online providers? So, look, if you're, if you're sitting,、um, At a school like Yale or something, you're on campus and there's literally amazing classmates right next to you. There's professors you can talk to physically in front of you that have all the answers. There's a lab down the street with exactly the tools you need. That's all good. But that's kind of a privilege that only exists at certain institutions and more importantly, exists for almost no high schools around the world. So I think that the social interactions, the in person experiences, if you can have those plus the access to amazing kind of people, that's win win. But most people don't get that, right? Coming back to, say, a typical high school, you have you know, one career counselor. You have some students that are highly motivated academically, many that aren't. The online schooling experience enables you to connect to classmates, professors, and resources that are far better than things that you can access in your local environment. And so there's a trade off between the marginal win of the kind of person in front of your screen against the cost of not being able to interact with them in person. So, yeah, I'd rather have a math teacher who's 10 out of 10. Uh, you know, online than sort of five out of 10 in person. But I'd probably rather have a teacher who's, you know, nine out of 10 in person than 10 out of 10 online. But it's all about that trade off. So, you know, yeah. And do you think for most people then that trade off? So you said the trade offs may be one out of 10. So if the teacher is 10% better, you do it online.、Um, what do you think that is for most people? And what do you think are, and why do you think there are so many stigmas about it, right? Because You really do see almost no one doing this fully online. There is almost a pejorative towards online education. People、um, always have these kind of rebellions that they're, you know, things you can't teach inside. You need these leader of men or leader of people, I guess, to be politically correct, figures kind of in place that are really formative. The impact of teachers on a student isn't as big if they're not seeing them every day. What do you think some of these stigmas are kind of coming from? And, What do you think online learning has to do in order to get past them? So, the first thing I would say is it's kind of a myth that online learning isn't very popular. You know,、um, online learning is, is becoming、uh, 
prolific. So take universities like Strayer University, DeVry University, University of Phoenix, Stanford Online High School, um, Western Governors University. These are institutions, um, you know, with variable, variable academic outcomes. Some of them, you know, hot, some of them not so hot. Yep. Um, Southern New Hampshire, another one. Exactly. Over 100,000 kids enrolled. Arizona State University's online programs. Beautiful. These things are just cranking in growth uh, all around the U.S. and worldwide. You know, I see students in China doing, you know, ASU online programs right now. So there is an inflection point that I believe we have reached in which online program access is becoming becoming rapidly more well understood. I think like any new technology, there's an adoption curve, there's some initial uncomfort, you know, there's uncertainty, and then the outcomes start to start to come out there. Most academic research, um, you know, in the field shows that for certain types of learning, online learning can be just as good, if not more effective. For other subsections of learning, it's way less effective. So for example, for remedial learners who can't focus very much, Online learning is terrible, right? Because if you aren't interested in math and, you know, you're, you could basically work at your own pace, it's very tough to stay focused in an online world. That's why the dropout rate of things like Coursera are super high and why, you know, typically it's only the more, most academic, most ambitious people that finish those kind of courses. So long story short, I would say that, um, you know, the reason why adoption is currently low is because it's always been low historically and now we're reaching a trend of change. Secondly, because, um, you know, uh, there is now a you know, um, growing interest in it, but that hasn't really existed previously. Thirdly, you know, there hasn't been much education support. You know, the big heavyweights like Harvard only got into edX, you know, an online kind of coursework in the last couple of years. Um, so I think we're very much in the infancy of this trend. But, you know, like, you know, internet and retail, if you ask Jeff Bezos at Amazon, you know, um, things can change pretty substantially over a 10-year period. I think the quote goes... You know, you're, uh, you always overestimate how fast things can change over a one-year period, but you dramatically underestimate how fast things can change over a 10-year period. And I think, you know, this next decade is going to be the decade of, you know, access when it comes to online learning. That's awesome. So one thing I wanted to also call out that you didn't mention is that a lot of these students enrolled are from different backgrounds, right? It's not just college kids who are substituting away from going to, say, Baylor or University of Arizona to go to Arizona State or, you know, your local New Hampshire community college in order to go to Southern New Hampshire online. It's a little different, right? Like you have people who are doing full-time jobs, yeah, who do part-time, high school kids who work ahead. And I think that is some of the magic that is there of online education is that you can constantly be going back to school. You're one of the biggest proponents I know about the power of education in order not only as a wealth creator, but also just as a status creator. Knowledge is power. Knowing more is knowing better. But I'm curious... There are problems with some of these online providers, right? Like some of them have come on to regulatory issues. There's child safety problems for those that are younger. And obviously there's, you know, quality control. A lot of them, those, you know, Harvard and Stanford have said publicly that the reason why they took a while to get into the space is if they need to put their name on it, something or really be associated with it, it's really important that it be done well and at a high level and the technology wasn't there. So with that, I'm just curious for you when you look at a program, let's, let's take Stanford High School. Very successful. You can look on their website. The amount of kids they get into top colleges is, quite honestly, simply tremendous. And the average ACD score at seven online high schools thirty four, which kicks the ass of many, many, many schools around the U.S. I mean, kicks my ass. Yeah. But anyway, um, and so when you think about that, you've really spent a good amount of time thinking about them. And you know, obviously, we're just off campus, so it's a little bit of a shout out, but. What do they do that makes them so tremendous? What have you learned from Stanford Online High School that differentiates them from 
online education institutions that either fail or just fall short of that ultimate goal? So I think, let me answer this by saying there are two types of learners for online high schools. Uh, or online schools generally. There are those who need to do it for convenience reasons because it's impractical to do things otherwise, and there are those who are so self-motivated they need to be given the resources to accelerate. Now, Stanford Online High School does an incredible job because they admit students that are very ambitious, that are very self-motivated, that are very academic. They then give these students access to college-level courses, you know, faculty that really can go above and beyond in certain niche fields of academics. That means these kids can just propel themselves at a much faster rate than the school environment. The next thing is Stanford Online High School has what's called a competency-based learning framework. That means that you don't move through year levels at school based on your age, rather your ability. So if you're a prodigy math talent age of 15 and you can already do like 18-year-old math, you can crank that math. And I think what that means is that for the kids that want that environment, who are self-motivated, who can take control of their own learning, they can just go bananas. And I would, I would argue that someone like you, David, um, you know, would thrive in an environment like that because you wouldn't be restricted based on what your high school can teach you. You know, if you want to be doing college of math courses, you can, you can do that. Um, and I think that, that is why the OHS at Stanford is very, very powerful. Um, I would argue, though, that, you know, that environment would not be very effective for students that aren't too academic, students that struggle to be focused, um, students that need a lot of accountability, babysitting, you know, they need to be made sure they turn up to the school. Um, those are not the students that can do well in an online high school environment. That's interesting because I, th- I think you do point out that right now online education is very self-motivated. Is it fair to say they're currently struggling with kids who aren't exemplary, who aren't self-motivated? And what do you think? Do you think that's a bug in the system or do you think that's a feature? So the first thing is Stanford Online High School is selective, right? So by definition, they, they take around 30 to 40% of applicants. So they actually cut out the kids that aren't that motivated at the start. So those kids aren't in the classes, which makes their life easier. I think the key thing that I would say, David, is, you know, physical schools aren't the magic antidote to kids that aren't motivated. The reality is kids that aren't motivated struggle in both environments, right? So I think fundamentally, um, you know, whether or not you go online, the, the deeper question is like, you know, how do you shift the proportion of the population that are motivated students? But for those of you listening, right, you know, you're either motivated, not motivated or on the spectrum. Um, you've got to think about yourself and kind of what's right for you. And I would imagine that if you're listening to a podcast that typically talks about how to get kids into competitive universities most effectively, you're probably a pretty ambitious person out there. And what that means is the kind of flexibility that something like Stanford Online High School offers or, say, Crimson's uh, intensive mentoring programs is actually very effective for you because it means you can kind of accelerate your learning. I know for me back in high school, um, you know, one big thing that kind of bugged me was that I couldn't take extra classes that I wanted to take in school. So I taught myself a bunch of other subjects outside of the school domain, and that was really fun, um, but, you know, it was a bit chaotic. So if I could, for example, log on online, I could hop in a class with you. You know, you're in tech because I'm in New Zealand. We both take physics together. That would be a blast. And that's kind of the experience that I'd want to have for students that are motivated around the world. Um, and relating back to college admissions, showing that kind of you know, autonomy, that self-efficacy, that drive to sort of improve, all of these traits look great for a prospective college applicant. So one other thing I want to get your pulse on, right, as we move towards online education, one of the things I've read about is concerns around just fraud. So if you're being in an online class, right, maybe you have video chat, but how do they know you are who they say you are? And if we're, if these programs are going to reach match market, how are these degrees going to be taken as seriously as real schools that don't suffer from nearly as many of these issues or can really just verify by seeing the kid in the class that the right person is doing everything? So do you think that's a problem for online schools and kind of how would you think that they can eventually get around stuff like that? So I would actually argue, I'd argue a couple of things. The first thing that I would say is that 
The biggest factor that drives the prestige of an institution is the accept is the effective acceptance rate. Um, so you know, I won't go into all the detail, but essentially, let's say that an institution like Harvard takes five percent, an institution like you know, say um, Ohio State takes you know seventy percent, whatever the stats are. The point is, the more selective an institution, the higher the prestige, you know, period. So in online high school, the only factor that determines its prestige in the end game is, you know, how many people are applying, how many people get in. And um, that that really is going to be the driving factor of that. So I think that, you know, credibility doesn't come from, you know, uh, much else other than the competitiveness of the pool. Um, that's why, for example, you know, um, a place like F Facebook or Google is very alluring to work at um, because it's just hard to get through the door. So the people that get through that door are very competitive and of high quality. Now, um, I guess when it comes to fraud and essentially the idea of, you know, can kids essentially cheat at large scales in um, these high schools, uh, what I would say is in the online world, it's actually almost harder to cheat than, you know, in the physical world um, for a couple of reasons. Because A... Um, everything is video recorded when it comes to exams um, in some institutions. And so literally you can go back and watch the tape and you can see, is this person who they say they are? Secondly, you know, many schools do funny things that are actually quite effective, like holding your ID card up um, and taking a photo before the exam um, uh, or taking a video so that they know the person there is, is real. Soon they'll be able to be easy things like fingerprint authentication. I mean, I can face pay, ID recognition. Exactly. Like I can buy my Yu-Gi-Oh cards on my app on my phone. You know, with a one click with my fingerprint. Um, you know, uh, and that fingerprint authorization, you know, counts. I mean, there are biometric scanners. This is not rocket science. So I think that can easily be solved in an online environment. Um, and I would argue that, you know, there's there's quite a lot of academic fraud already in high schools, physical high schools. You know, there's been big scandals in China and Thailand and Russia. Um, you know, this is already a big problem. Um, I would argue that tech plus, like improved tech plus the existing online world could actually be a good antidote for that, for that fraud. Um, so I don't really think that it contributes to more fraud as long as there's rigorous, you know, institutional controls. Now, if you're in an online high school or a university and you don't you don't care about these things, then yes, you open yourself up to be taken advantage of by the students. It's bad for you and bad for the student. That's that that's not very good. But assuming that you're a you know a reasonably uh, you know, efficient kind of operator and, you know, you're, you're putting in place good tech, that kind of thing, I think you can, you know, make it pretty locked down. Um, yeah. Cool. And so with that in mind, actually, one thing you'd mentioned earlier I wanted to learn more about was you mentioned all these universities, you mentioned all these high schools that are doing the online, um, online only education. So Stanford OHS, you mentioned DeVry, Southern New Hampshire, Arizona State, all these kind of if not well-known programs, bigger names in the online space, Grand Canyon, stuff like that. And one thing I wanted to ask you was, when do you think this gets overseas? When do you think this generalizes more? And what is it about the U.S. and the U.S. education system that has allowed it to foster here? Because as you said, um, if you've said in an earlier podcast, U.S. admissions and the U.S. education system in general isn't based on just results. It very much is based on those soft skills, on personal interaction, your communication with your classmates, leadership, things like that. So I'm curious for why you think that maybe this is incubated first in the U.S. and whether adoption will be higher or lower overseas and when we might see that. So I think it's it's pretty straightforward. Um, the best innovations in this space are happening in America because of the concentration of scale of people, a big population, followed by top talent, i.e. there are amazing education innovators in this market, and you know, thirdly, quality internet. I think these three factors in combination drive a lot of the innovation in this space. That's led to kind of, you know, a community of innovators in education technology, which support one another to keep thinking of these innovations. 
The other place where there's amazing innovation online is in China, right? Similarly, there's a critical mass of talent, of scale, and of internet access um, to at least at least the tier one cities. And this is what drives innovation there as well. So I think what we're seeing basically is that, um, you know, like many great businesses, these things will start in massive global hubs and kind of diffuse around the world pretty rapidly. Um, similar to the rise of e-commerce, which was very big in America and then became very big in China and now is becoming very big all over the world. Think about Flipkart now in India. So um, I think that's that. That's the first point. Um, the second point I'd make about you know global adoption is that um, you know the the rate of adoption really depends on I guess the effectiveness. And you're right. You know if people don't buy that you can develop good social interactions online, adoption will be slower. But in saying that, there are many innovative models. For example, Stanford Online High School they send you actually to like in person leadership experiences. You know once a quarter um, to meet other classmates. There's catch ups. There's, there's you know experiential learning projects, things like that, which to help which help complement that experience. So I mean I I'm a big fan. I I think there's a lot of potential for this, and you know the field's just going to keep growing and growing. Great. When do you think it's going to be huge adoption? I mean, you said we're at an inflection point. How many more years do you kind of ballpark pin it until this is, if not a dominant mode of education, one that is a lot more socially acceptable and one that really has realized maybe the vision of being globally accepted and usable by people across the world? So I'm not going to make a prediction about, you know, what percentage of the world is going to learn by what year or anything like that. But what I would say is, Seeing the way college admissions is going, seeing how competitive it is getting to get into these top schools, I can imagine like, you know, uh, a third to a half of my students who are basically typically in the top 10 or 20% of their high schools around the world using online learning to supplement their, their in-person experience over the next couple of years. Already I see a large number of my kids adopting courses. When you say supplement, is that taking additional classes online? Yes, is that tutoring? What, yeah. what, what, can you describe it, yeah, for listeners what that means? That's right. It's taking additional classes. So it's taking Harvard's online course. It's taking some Stanford on, online courses. It could be taking the Crimson online courses, whatever they are. I think that many learners around the world are going to need to start doing this actively because basically, you know, if they don't, their competitors in other kind of parts of the world, other parts of the country who are trying to boost their academics faster, you know, will do. So I think essentially competition will drive adoption within the most ambitious, you know, segment of students. That will be an early adopter kind of community. Now, as far as how fast the adoption moves from these high-achieving, highly ambitious, competitive students to other segments, um, you know, I think that that remains to be a debate. And I think, you know, a lot of that will be affected by sort of the public policy discussion. How fast, you know, people, you know, like us, you know, um, make the case, advocate for the data, et cetera, and drive that. But, um, yeah, I would say I'm, I'm very confident that this is going to be a necessity if you're a competitive high school student to take online courses, um, you know, over the next couple of years, if not already, to stand out. Great. Well, thank you very much. Um, really appreciate you coming into the studio and having the chat with me. Again, just to recap, um, three main things. The first is Jamie talked about how online classes give you flexibility and independence. Going back to his first experience in CS50, um, he talked about how you can really balance those lectures, again, to be watched at 2x, potentially, um, with that kind of in-person time with tutors or the on-demand tutoring service that will give you the personal attention you need in addition to the flexibility to do the group work whenever you need to. The next thing we talked about was the myth that online schools aren't popular. So while you might not hear about them, it's because there are people across the spectrum doing it. From young to old, people are really going back to these schools and learning new skills. It's a common form for job training. And especially in the U.S., you get both adults trying to recalibrate their careers and young people really trying to get ahead and learning new skills that 
might be really expensive to do at their current institutions. The last thing we talked about is when it's going to spread and what really makes a good online high school and what are the preconditions that would see a rise in other universities. Jamie talked about Stanford Online High School, their leadership trips, the way they balance learning online with a high-quality education and a selective admission system that limits fraud and ensures quality control among its students and academic buy-in, and how that really has gotten people in the U.S. to really believe in the capabilities of these institutions, as well as the universities that have followed Arizona State, DeVry, Southern New Hampshire, all examples we talked about. Talking about how that could spread internationally, one thing Jamie highlighted was just a willingness and awareness and quality Wi-Fi. And once that is spread across the world, he thinks you'll see more people who are really getting into this, really seeing it as a way to get ahead and really using it as an outlet for their ambition and to find out how they can turn their passions into realizing themselves on the world stage. Is that fair, Jamie? Is there anything else you'd like to add? I thought that was an incredible summary. It could almost be an online lecture. Okay. Incredible. (laughs) Well, thank you very much for listening. Please subscribe to our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. Thank you very much and see you next time. Thanks for listening to the Crimson Education Podcast. Do you have questions, concerns, or recommendations? Email us at podcast at crimsoneducation.org and we'll get right back to you. And if you want to stop waiting and start forging the path to the school of your dreams, visit crimsoneducation.org to get a free education assessment with one of our academic experts. Crimson Education. Reimagine what's possible.